You know, we're all forgotten shortly after we're gone. Um, and that's just the way it works. I'd like to think, in retrospect, that I've touched enough people in a positive way that I've improved their lives and that any interaction I have with them, it, it mattered. It was relevant. And somehow they were better for having interacted with me. So if I can leave this earth and know that I left behind even just one person whose life I made better in some small way, that's a win for me because there's very few people that I think think about that. If it's more than one, that's an okay thing too. People are very ready to accept whatever they're presented with as this is just a done deal. This is just the way it is. And I think a lot of people are just too maybe exhausted to do anything differently, but it's that not a decision that you're going to be argumentative or you're going to make a decision that you're just not going to get along. But to me, it's more of a curiosity. We get one, we're here for a limited period of time. We get one shot at this. You're not coming back and doing it over again. Welcome to another episode of American Real, where this week we're releasing our first in-person episode in months, and boy does it feel good. Today, our guest is Gary Sindebrand. Gary is a consummate professional who has spent his entire career as a financial advisor and trainer of fellow advisors. Today, we dive into his business, but more importantly, we discuss Gary's many gifts as a seasoned speaker and educator, which has helped thousands over the years. Buckle up as Gary demonstrates his greatest life lesson, a license to learn. And speaking of learning, enrollment is now open for you to learn how to write your first book in 90 days or less. Join me as I guide a group of like-minded, aspiring authors who are all working toward writing and publishing their first book as a means to share their knowledge and aim to gain credibility in their field or industry. Spots are limited, so don't hesitate to join us today. And now, I bring to you, Mr. Gary Sindebrand. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Gary Cinderbrand. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. Good we've been we've been talking now and working together now for a couple of months, and what a pleasure it's been. You're you're such a professional. You're so good at what you do, and I'm just um, honored to sit with you here today and be able to share a piece of your story with our audience. That's really kind of you to say. I would uh, say the same thing going back the other way, um, and uh, it's really been a pleasure. Uh, you've removed so much stress from this entire process, I can't even tell you how easy it's been uh, to do something that i am always been in love with and seem to be pretty good at, uh, but you and the rest of the crew have just been phenomenal. Thanks. Well, you caught us at the perfect time because I had uh, just left my corporate America career and started uh, you know, this anew with uh, my business partner, Andre. And you came in, you were one of our very first client partners that we signed up. And that is to teach your course in our new program called Innovate University. 
and um, we'll talk about that today, how you are going to take financial advisors and give them an accelerator course to really help propel their career. Basically, what you've been doing for the past, I don't know, 12, 15 years in person, um, I know you have over 35 years of experience in, in the financial advisory world, but really s specifically training, but you would go on location, right? I know you said there were like three or four locations. Jacksonville, I think, was one of them where, where you'd show up and do these big group trainings. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how this transition has been into online education. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the timing of the thing because as I was thinking about um, how I wanted to spend um, the next, hopefully, 10 to 15 years, uh, I've always been a fan of doing something because I believe in it and I enjoy it. Um, as I thought about what or how I could contribute, especially to the profession that's been so good to me, um, teaching was something that I never really anticipated would play a major role. I sort of fell into it um, early in my career and didn't know I had any ability to do it at all. Uh, as it turned out, um, I seemed to be pretty good at it, and the results that I was able to get from my colleagues, uh, beginning at Merrill Lynch, uh, supported um, Merrill Lynch making a, an extended commitment uh, for me to deliver that training to literally probably well in excess of 10,000 financial advisors, many of whom came through repeatedly. I was fairly uh, close to booking additional in-person dates after kind of an extended sabbatical back with Merrill Lynch, who was very happy to entertain those discussions again, uh, and uh, re-enter the fray as a consultant with them. Uh, and then COVID hit. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the type of things that I've always taught aren't necessarily reactive to a market environment uh, or even to what might be happening in general. They're kind of timeless. They really rely far more on who we are as individuals, how we relate with other people, our ability to exhibit what I would call intellectualized empathy, uh, where you do truly feel what other people feel. And I thought in terms of, well, this, since we can't do face-to-face -face meetings, I've got to find an alternative. And then you guys showed up. And it literally has been uh, a pleasure producing the content with you and you've removed all the stress and the hardest part is actually just not getting a reaction of a crowd of a hundred people staring back at you but figuring out how to evoke that same feeling when you're looking into a camera and you guys have helped me learn how to do that as well it's not something I ever thought I would do uh, but it's been a real pleasure and I thank you and the team for it. Oh no appreciate it what's really neat about it is it's like two worlds colliding and that's happening now with us with multiple instructors like you. So we're in the process of, we're a startup, we're building this business. And what really makes it special is that, I, I don't know, and, and, and you've, I gave you my book, so I think you know a little bit about my insight into some of these things. But I really believe there's some type of, whatever you want to call it, divine intervention when people meet anyway. It's how do you react in those situations? How do you take advantage of that? Um, do you just look at it on the surface or do you, you know, do you really embrace new relationships when you see that there's good chemistry there? And that's, that's how I feel it was with you. Like it was the perfect timing. Uh, Danny Crowley found you. Uh, AJ got on a call. We all, you know, and then it just all started working together. And then here we are recording the course curriculum 
And the other neat part about it for us is we're learning as you're delivering the content. So now we could better understand what you're trying to teach so we could do a better job for you taking phone calls and w whatever else we're going to be doing on your behalf. So it's just, it's been, it's been such a pleasure. I, I, I really did enjoy reading your book. And I, as I would read topics, I would think to myself, okay, he's going to develop this, say that, and say the other thing. And sure enough, there it was. Because a lot of the, the uh, things that you wrote about in the book, which um, I've enjoyed, are things that you have to be open to the possibility that that actually exists. And I think one of the reasons that um, we, we had a good fit almost from the outset was I know personally I'm increasingly comfortable with what I don't know. I'm increasingly open to learning as much as I can, increasingly open to trying to figure out what are the questions that I'm seeking answers to rather than making believe I have the answers. So it's this concept of being available to learn or being open to anything new that you see. And when you find somebody else that kind of looks at it the same way, you can come together with different skill sets and produce something that hasn't existed before. And that's generally the feeling that I've had as we've gone through the production and the taping and the support has been phenomenal. And, you know, uh, at the beginning, you know, you made a promise to me and I didn't understand how you were going to do it. And I told you I can deliver and build content. And you said we can do the rest and you have been as good as your word or better because the, the, the support and the feeling has just been great, which has allowed me to focus more on the content and not worry about all the other things. So it's as close to what I used to do face to face you know, whether it was Merrill or when I had my own training company, I had to support people. I had folks either at Merrill or when we were doing this uh, on our own that would arrange the room, arrange the flight, um, get the people in the seats, take care of logistics, do all the rest of it. All things I'm capable of doing but I'm not very good at. Where what I really wanted to do was really focus on what the content would be and making sure that everybody had a great experience, um, which I seem to be okay at doing. The rest of it, you know, kind of like, okay, oops, forgot that one. Um, but you've removed all of those concerns. Well, and look, I can't take any of that credit um, other than just being part of the team because we really are a team. Have Michael Leonard, who's our, our producer and does all the great video work. But um, I want to also talk about this young crew of Gen Zers that I just want to get your, because I'm, I'm just taken back by this crew. And I, and I don't think it's just our crew. I think it's Gen Z in, in general. These are smart kids who are not afraid to work. Um, they're not afraid to give their opinion. Um, I know when I was their age, I was way more reserved in or having confidence to be able to. But that's why it's all working is because it's there's people in place, I believe, that, as you said, we kind of stay in our lane. We know what we're good at, and each person does their part, your part being the most important, delivering the content, but what do you think about this Gen Z? Well, I understand you, you say, and I appreciate what you're saying, but they are um, like a breath of fresh air. Uh, the, this part of getting the content out there in a different medium than the face-to-face, -face, which is what I've worked in my entire life, is not something I grew up with. Um, I, I know what Facebook is. I think I have a Facebook page. I know what LinkedIn is in, and I mildly understand how it works, but I don't use those things as tools. I don't use those things from a marketing perspective, and I certainly can't lay claim to being able to develop um, data science around it. 
and understand how to actually make that work and make it work efficiently. Um, so it all felt really good to me, but what really struck home was uh, both of my kids are, they're, they're kind of like this crew, but they're a little bit older. And they both have tremendous jobs. One is, uh, works for a, a tech company that develops um, extraordinary ideas around data privacy. And my daughter is uh, a uh, director uh, with a consumer products company, which is uh, ironically doing incredibly well, but spends a lot of her time in the Amazon world and the Facebook world. And when I began to explain what they were doing, because they're very concerned about, oh no, dad is like wandering into this space and he's going to get run over by every digital bus there is. And I was explaining what they were doing. Um, the most recent comment I had from my daughter was, you're working with a bunch of rock stars. So I'm explaining to her, well, we're doing this, that, and the other. She goes, dad, these guys really, they know what they're doing. You're going to do great with them. And they're kind of looking at the stuff that's developing. I'm sharing it with them. And they're like, just do what they say. <laughs> I'm like, what, what comments do you have? Do your content. Do your teaching. You're great at it. Don't do anything else. And I'm like, awesome. Great. Fine. So from my perspective, I have a great feeling of comfort. I mean, my sense of it with your crew as people you call Gen Zers, um, I look at them and I, you know, I mentioned in one of the videos that I'm a bit envious of people that haven't kind of understood what their true potential is and what they're going to do to the world. I'm including your team as well because they're, they're going to do things that they can't even imagine. And they're starting with a great mentor and they're starting, I think, at a great time. We're in this knuckle of history, this, this era of in-between where we don't know where it's going to go, but we know for certain it's not going to go back to what it was. And the only way you participate in whatever this world becomes is to be active throughout. And sitting on the sidelines has never worked for me. And participating from the bleachers and telling somebody how things should be has never made sense. You've got to be in it. And, you know, your team is so invested in what they're doing. And I think also you all recognize that the ability to get content, knowledge, wisdom, advice, whatever it is, out there, which has largely been dominated by the face-to-face, -face, high logistical load meeting, I don't think it's ever coming back like that. I really don't. Because I think that the technology that we now have available to us will develop much more efficiently where it's going to become the preferred way of learning. And I think you guys are right on the edge of that right now. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about your background, how you got into this business, and then I'd love for you to share some tips with our listeners about what you do so well so they could better understand what's happening in the world right now. And I've, I've heard it from you, you know, a couple of times now, and I think it's very important to share this information. But let's back, let's back up. Let's go back to when Gary was young. and Tell us about your upbringing um, and uh, what that was like, how you got into this field to begin with. Okay. Uh, you know, um, I grew up in a beach community called Margate, New Jersey. And um, we moved twice uh, within a three-block radius, closer to the beach each time. Um, I didn't really go to summer camp. I think I went one year and I hated it. My summer camp was the beach. I would basically haul a surfboard down there in the morning. Um, and if there were waves, we would surf. And if there wasn't, we would hang around, come back to the house for lunch occasionally, and spend every, literally every day on the beach until I began working. And I can't remember not having a job from paper routes at eight years old um, through working the docks uh, in my high school years. Uh, I worked through college. 
as well. Um, I went to uh, high school in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where we were what's called a sending community. Um, and that was um, a good experience because I came from a community that was mostly middle class and upper middle class, monochromatic, and went to a high school where the kids from Margate were in the minority. So you learned how to get along with everybody, uh, or it was really hard. So that was a really positive experience overall as I look at it. Um, you know, you have conflict, you have problems, you learn how to figure them out, and you move forward. But at that point in time, you start to think to yourself, you know, it's a big world out there and not everybody comes from a privileged background. There are people that have real problems and real issues. But you also find that everybody's got those things when you look at them. Um, I was uh, coming out of high school. Um, my friends were going to colleges in bunches. They were going to Rutgers or Boston University or uh, other schools where there were three, four, five, six, ten, eight people, whatever. And I, I always had the inclination that I came through high school and I was part of a large group of friends and I was just kind of one of the guys that was always there. And you were defined almost from grade school as to what your role in that was. Um, and I, I realized that, you know, I always thought I wanted to kind of go out on my own path, but I don't know how I could do that if I went to a school where I'd be immediately predefined as that guy in the same way I always was. So um, one of the schools I applied to was University of Colorado. I had never been to Colorado in my life. I'd only seen pictures. Um, but I knew two things. The pictures looked really good, and the skiing was better than the East Coast. Um, I come from a skiing family. We've been skiing as far back as I can remember. I don't even know when I learned. It was maybe I was four or five years old, and it was like, here's your skis, there's the mountain, goodbye. And off we went. Um, so I was accepted there. I was also accepted to a state school, uh, which would have been a fraction of the cost. And as I was trying to decide, because I was worried about the money, and I asked my dad, he said, how would you feel if you didn't go to Boulder? I said, I feel like I missed something. He said, well, that's where you're going to go. And I went to Boulder and literally didn't know a soul and was terrified. And it's this huge school, and I didn't know anybody. Uh, I wasn't anybody. I was whatever I was going to become. And slowly but surely, I started to build a group of close friends out there. Um, I've always been a decent skater, but not a great skater. I, I never played hockey formally, uh, but I used to go to the hockey games, and somehow I got talking to a couple of the officials, and the next thing I knew, I was at a referee's camp, and I ended up working my way through college officiating ice hockey, which was really fun. What um, level was that? Well, I, I officiated all the way through high school and, and uh, men's leagues, um, but there were some days, and I would also do kids that were five years old. Uh, which was fun and had some great experiences and met some great people in doing it and spent a lot of time on the ice and it was really a great experience. Um, some real embarrassing things can happen from time to time. You get hurt a little bit, you get into a lot of fights, uh, but you learn how to keep your head and cool things out. And it was really a, a rewarding experience and made some great friends in doing it. I graduated college um, with a degree in environmental biology and uh, I think I mentioned a minor in abnormal animal behavior. Um, very helpful for my future profession. 
and um, really felt good about it and wanted to, from there, uh, pursue a military career. It was my first choice. And I realized it a little bit too late uh, while I was in school, so I didn't go through the reserve officer program in school. But I'd always been fascinated by aviation. I'd always been committed to becoming a pilot. And as I looked at things, I, I realized that if, you know, I grew up next to the water, and if I'm going to learn how to fly, I want to go learn how to fly in the Navy. So I went and talked to the recruiters after school, and they were very honest with me. They said, look, um, we can get you a spot in OCS. It's great. Love to have you. Um, we cannot guarantee aviation even a little bit because here are the number of pilots we still have on active duty that are coming back from Vietnam, and they still have life on service. Here are the ships that are being decommissioned. Here's the Navy's needs over the next blah, blah, blah years. And ahead of you would be uh, the Annapolis folks, the people that are coming through ROTC already that are there, and previous enrollees in Officers Candidate School. So if you got into aviation, you may end up in helicopters. You may end up in rotary if you made it. Um, what we recommend you do is take a couple of years. You're still under the age limit. Um, and if you're out there and you don't get a job you fall in love with, let's come back and talk again, and things should loosen up, and we'll see if we can get you a spot. I said, okay. Um, went home, thought about what I wanted to do, and I had always been fascinated by the brokerage business. Of course, I had no sales experience at all. So to get the modest sales experience I'd need to even apply, I got a real estate license. And um, my father owned a real estate and insurance company, and I briefly went to work with him uh, as a real estate salesperson. And I think I closed a couple of sales. It was kind of enjoyable, kind of sort of enjoyable. But next door was a broker, a manager of the local Dean Witter office, and he always seemed happy. And I, he did well, and he had a beautiful sport fishing boat, a Bertram, 51-footer named Bull Market. I didn't know what a bull market was at the time. <laughs> and it was always something I really was interested in doing. And I found out shortly thereafter that Merrill Lynch was opening an office in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I tracked down who the manager was going to be and um, wrote in for an application um, and was basically told, don't waste your time. Um, I applied also to Bayesian Company. Um, they gave me a 25-question multiple-choice test and said I didn't have any selling skills, but thanks for applying. I didn't give up on Merrill Lynch. Um, I took their initial aptitude test and passed that. I took an initial interview, which to me um, was not encouraging. You know, it's go get five years' experience selling anything and then come back. Uh, but look, I'm going to not tell you no right here. I'm going to send you to somebody else to, to go and talk to. So I went through a, an interview with um, the potential branch manager who then sent me to New York to interview with an industrial psychologist for four hours. It's like a wow. trying to figure out, well, do you need to be crazy to have the job, or is she trying to determine if I'm not crazy? So I went through that and figured I would never hear another thing, following like another call. And the call is, um, well, you, you impressed uh, Dr. Marks. Um, not sure why, but she seems to think I shouldn't tell you no so fast, so I'd like to put you through a uh, sales simulation exercise. And I said, well, what's that? I said, well, you're going to come up to Philadelphia, and... Um, you're going to sit in the boardroom. I'm thinking to myself, what's a boardroom? I thought it was, you know, sit around a table on a board. And uh, 
you're going to make believe you're doing this job and we'll give you everything you need and we'll go from there. I said, great. Next thing I know, I'm up there and I'm reading research reports and I'm reading client reports and I'm reading and people that work there are making believe that they're customers or managers or whatever they may be. And I'm listening at the next desk over to somebody ask a question and the person at the next desk is fumbling around, doesn't have an answer, and is trying to kind of BS his way through the answer. And I'm going, wait a second, that name is down here in the stack and I'm reading it and I'm listening to the answer. And I'm going, okay, that's how I'm going to answer that one. So it went on for about three hours and at the end of it, it was like, what do you mean we're done? I loved it. It was great. It was fast. It was active. It was challenging. And the, it seemed like the more pressure that was on, the more I enjoyed it. A couple of people got up and walked out. They said, forget, I'm never doing this job. Forget it. I'm leaving. Wow. And I loved it. And I remember meeting a bunch of friends in Philadelphia that night, and they said, how did it go? I said, if they don't hire me, I think they're nuts. I said, I really loved it. They said, oh, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. You're going to get it. I went through one more interview and got the offer. Wow. Uh, and the offer was, um, we still don't think you're going to make it, but we can't think of any reason not to hire you. Found out later I was the only person that applied for the spot. <laughs> but that's how it started. Neat. Is that process very similar to how they do this hiring you know, for, for that industry? Uh, you know, at the time, it's hard to say. Um, you know, as I said, there was another company that gave me a 25-question multiple-choice test, and that was it. But when I applied, Merrill Lynch was always different than the other firms because Merrill Lynch was kind of built. It was always this concept of you know, bringing Main Street to Wall Street. Um, it was built by, you know, people that came out of the military, people that um, would not nor normally be associated with a firm like a Goldman Sachs uh, or even a J.P. Morgan. So it was, I don't want to call it hard scrabble, but it was real people. And I was really fortunate because I was able to join Merrill Lynch at a time where Merrill Lynch was really distinguishing itself as a different firm than the rest of the industry. You walked in every day and you saw a plaque written by Charlie Merrill, one of the founders of the firm, that said the interests of our clients shall always come first. And it's nice to have platitudes. It's great. Nice things to say. Until you're actually working in the environment and you realize they're not kidding around. I mean, there were multiple ways you could screw up, but the way that you were certain to be out the door is if you ever placed your interest in front of a client or did anything that subordinated the client's interest to yours. You were done. You were just gone. So the firm was living its values, which I really, really felt strongly about. And I was there at a time of phenomenal growth, and I got to be part of that growth, and I think contribute to it. And it was just a tremendous experience. Um, hiring today is different. Um, the job is the same. And I was just very, very fortunate to be there at the right time. That's awesome. So you spent several years as an advisor. You're growing in your career, and then at what point does the training come in? When do they approach you about this, or how did that, how did that happen? Well, it was kind of accidental. Um, I had um, I'd had success early. I had failure early, and, but fortunately, the, the failure came with some pretty significant production numbers for a, a rookie. My first year was um, lousy. I didn't know what I was doing and shown a couple of strategies which were Good for the firm and good for me from an income standpoint, but not good for clients. But the numbers kind of popped me up on a couple of boards, and I was noticed by a few people in management levels a couple of levels up. Um, 
one of the folks that were that uh, I used to report to, a gentleman who was a regional director, asked me if I would speak uh, to a group of people in the region um, that were younger in their career, and I was only, I think, in my second year. And I said, well, what do you want me to talk about? He said, just tell them what you do. And he wanted me to talk for a half hour after this, what was called a recognition dinner that he was hosting in Philadelphia, uh, 50 or 60 people. So I wrote out this whole long speech, and then I reduced the whole long speech to a bunch of index cards by topic, and then I cut the index cards down by topic to some keywords that I remember. And I'm sitting there throughout the dinner, I'm so nervous I can't even eat. And I get introduced, and I stand up, I put my index cards down, and that's the last time I look at them. And there's a podium there, and it's the last time I see the podium. And I just start to interact with people in the room and start to explain, I don't know why I'm here, what, you know, why Larry invited me, but he wanted me to tell you what I do, so here's what I do. And it wasn't like this prepared speech, and the more I was explaining what I did, I'd see people kind of go, wait, and I'd say, okay, yeah, what's the question? Because I want to make sure, because um, what, what can I explain further? Well, how did you do this, that, and the other thing? Oh, great question. I figured that part out because I put this, that, and that together, and I got to that. And somebody would say, well, wait, 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 what about this? And I'd say, yep, that too. Hadn't thought about it that way, but thank you, because now I will. And the thing turned into a group discussion that I was kind of the, um, the promoter of. And I think they, the host, uh, this gent, Larry Biederman, said last question. He probably said that five times. And an hour and a half later, my half-hour thing was done. I hadn't touched the index cards. Um, people were leaving and thanking me, and Larry came up to me and said, how did you learn how to do that? And I said, how did we learn how to do what? He said, that. I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, I said, uh, don't know. I never did it before. He goes, we got to talk. So from there, um, he started to kind of promote me around his region, and um, he was very prominent because he worked at the national level as well. And I was noticed nationally and asked to do one or two things. And then one day, talking to the woman that ran training for the entire firm, um, she, I think, made the mistake of asking me what I thought about their training programs that she knew I wasn't using anything of. And I explained it to her. And she said, you think you could do better? And I just thought about it. And I said, I think the training could be better. She goes, why don't you put something together and show me what you got? That's how it started. Wow. Um, and they were smart. And Merrill was very smart with her money as well. And I, I partnered up with another gentleman, another financial advisor, was a good friend named Bob Payne. And we developed a program that we had no idea if we do it one time and it would be done or if it would actually resonate. And it seemed to resonate. Twelve years later, it was still going strong. Seems, Gary, that you have, and I love just to dive into this because I want to know where it comes from. You have a lot of guts. You're convicted. You know what you're talking about, which is the first part, right? But even beyond the business, I think about your pilot. Um, you talked about surfing, um, you know, working since you're eight years old. Where does this come from? That's a great question. Um, it's funny because I've talked to other people um, that are in stressful positions that are that react to uh, things that would normally 
cause people to have fear. What I, I didn't realize until many, many years later that there are the two or three things that people are most terrified of, I seem to really enjoy. Um, public speaking is on everybody's top five list, and flying is on everyone's <laughs> list. And if I'm flying um, and the visibility is essentially zero, and I'm completely reliant on the instrument instruments that are surrounding me, that's my happy place. And my wife looked over at me one day and she said, why are you smiling? I said, I don't know why I'm smiling. And she doesn't like it when it's like that. She normally puts a coat over her head. And I'm just at peace. And she goes, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> I said, well, obviously. But it just, I'm not sure what it was. I think it is, it's the ability to completely commit at, to the exclusion of almost everything else that's around you, to whatever that task is that's right in front of you and compartmentalize it in a way that the rest of the world's still going to be there when you're done, but you're in that moment, and that moment is all that matters. What happened before and what happens next doesn't matter. As bad as you may feel at the beginning of that day doesn't matter if you're in that moment, and stepping out of that moment either you know, in speaking runs the risk of wasting everybody else's time who's come to see you speak, or if I'm flying, could result in something really, really bad happening. I had great mentors um, in aviation uh, that really trained into me the concept of focus, and aviation really has a lot of metaphors that relate directly to your life in general. So it was always kind of a natural thing for me. Um, skiing, um, which I, I've loved forever, uh, is almost similar because it just allows me to throw myself completely into something and it's almost like a mini vacation for your mind. You come back and all your problems are still there but instead of looking at them from this kind of prison of despair which is very easy to drop into, you're looking at them in a way that you're refreshed but you don't even know that that's happened. So I would finish let's say an instrument flight that it, it not necessarily challenging but it would be technical. You take off you can't see, you land you can't see until you land. To me, that's science and math and physics and happiness. And I am finished with it, and I just feel phenomenal about it. It's that ability to just put that singular focus into something. And I see so frequently people that say they're committed to something. They talk about being committed to something. But their ability to actually deliver on that is just in what they say and not what they do. And I'm much more concerned about what someone does rather than what they say. People can say anything they want. When I hear words, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Well, until you actually do it, I understand it, but go do it. And it seems like that's why you connected with Merrill so well, because that was their mission statement, right? And you said they live behind that. Um, but also, I think about you getting on the ski slopes when you were young. You know, how, how young were you when, the, when your parents dragged you? On the, on the I want to say like two, but no, I think I was a little older. Yeah. I think I was four or five. Yeah. And um, my cousin Mark, uh, who was always a better skier than me, didn't matter how old we got, he was always better, um, had skied one or two times beforehand, so he was in charge of making sure I came back at the end of the day. And um, we skied at a mountain. Our first, my first mountain was in New York State, a mountain called Davos. And it was the kind of mountain where when you drove into the parking lot, the slope was actually, you drove into the parking lot at the top of the mountain, to give you an idea, it wasn't very big, and you skied down. Um, and I, it was rainy, it was cold, it was wet, and I loved it from the outset. 
um, and just year after year after year would find other excuses to go skiing. I used to organize bus trips in high school where I'd call bus companies and like in a real low voice like I was an adult and I'd charter a bus <laughs> um, and we'd organize the trip and price it and it was it was great. I mean skiing was a huge part of my family life growing up. Colorado was there and then I had a home in Colorado for uh, a number of years after that and would go back and forth. My kids learned to ski also at a very young age and um, went by me like I was standing still. Uh, they're both phenomenal skiers and my son who um, basically um, thinks of the mountain, the open terrain on the mountain as areas you go through to get to the good stuff. Um, I've made the mistake of following him into some pretty interesting areas. <laughs> He's like, come on dad, you can do this, you can do this. I said, you know, I know I can do it, I don't know if I want to do it. Um, but it's been great stories and great fun and um, you know, our whole family you know, continues to enjoy it. And whether it's skiing or aviation or surfing or working as a financial advisor, any part of life, isn't it about trusting the process of the steps, the tools that we're given? And I mean, I, I think aviation is the best example. If you're not trusting the process and doing what you're supposed to be doing, you could get in trouble quickly. But that's life in general. I would even take that, agree with you, but I take it a slightly different pathway. When I was first, when I first passed my first private pilot exam, which was administered by a, what's called a designated pilot examiner who is a highly experienced pilot that also has an FAA designation. This gentleman was a, um, he had about 25,000 hours. He was a Continental Airlines pilot. Um, it's the kind of guy that could fly a barn door if you got it going fast <laughs> enough. Um, and I passed the exam and we're sitting there and he's talking to me. He says, okay. He goes, I'm about to sign this, but you need to give me your word on two things. And I'm not screwing around because I've seen the data and you have to give me your word on this. First understand that this license is not a license to fly an airplane. This is a license to learn how to become a good pilot. The second thing is no night flying without an instructor, no runway shorter than 3,000 feet until you have at least 250 hours. Give me your word on both of those. I was like, whoa. I gave him my word. And I realized when he talked about a license to learn how serious he was. And if you talk to any pilot, I don't care how much experience they have, the reason that they're still alive isn't because they're you know, bold and fast and reckless. It's because they treat aviation as a life and death event and they approach it from the perspective of learning. I approached advisory from the perspective of learning. I approached teaching other financial advisors from the perspective of my opportunity to learn from other people, improve my craft personally as well as what I can teach others to help them. But I didn't learn all the things I now teach. I didn't cook them all up. I got them from other advisors who solved similar issues and I was completely open to taking what someone else had learned and being able to put that through the things I may have found out from myself or developed on my own into something that was brand new. And I've approached that almost everywhere. Um, I enjoy fly fishing as you know, we're close yes. to some good water and when I go out with a guide to learn the local water, um, I'm an okay fly fisherman. I'm nowhere near professional at it. But I get better each time because each guide I'm with 
and the guides will always say, they're always a little hesitant if they know you kind of know what you're doing. They're always a little hesitant to give you tips and notes, and I get it right out there. Anything you see I'm doing, anything at all, that you can tweak me on or correct, please tell me you're not going to hurt my ego. As a result, I've been able to get a little bit better each time. So the concept of being invested in the process, to me, is as I get older, there's so much I don't know. There's more and more things I don't know. But I'm always interested in learning more. And you never know where it's going to take you or what's going to happen. So you know, every day is different. That's great. What's the secret there? Because I think a lot of people struggle with this, uh, especially as we get older, we get set in our ways. What's the secret in constantly being a learner and being open to learning for you? I think for me, I don't want to say I'm skeptical or argumentative or anything like that, but people are very ready to accept whatever they're presented with is this is just a done deal. This is just the way it is. Um, can I talk to your supervisor? No. Why? It's our policy. Who wrote the policy? The supervisor. So you're telling me that somebody wrote a policy that says I can't talk to them. Does that make sense to you? And then the person would go, you know, not really. But you talk to people like that and they're going to just go with whatever someone kind of tells them to do instead of inquiring as to why it's that way. Um, coming up as an advisor, uh, and I looked at a lot of the things I was being taught to do or trained to do, and I would ask questions like, well, why are you doing it this way? Which doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Why don't you do it this way? And what was interesting about the whole evolution at Merrill Lynch was Merrill Lynch would use people that, in their training department, that had never been successful as financial advisors. So they took jobs internally training. So to me it was like, so what you're saying is, is that you're trying to train pilots, and the pilots you're going to use to train the other pilots aren't the guys that have 25,000 hours, they're the guys that crash the airplanes in training. And Merrill was like, yeah, that's kind of right. And that was the, this whole concept of peer-based training to Merrill's credit, really emerged, emulated ultimately by a lot of other firms. So I, I'm not afraid to, to challenge something that doesn't make sense, and, or if I can find a better or more elegant way to do things. And I think a lot of people are just too maybe exhausted to do anything differently, but it's that not a decision that you're going to be argumentative or you're, you're going to make a decision that you're just not going to get along, but to me it's more of a curiosity. We get one, we're here for a limited period of time. We get one shot at this. You're not coming back and doing it over again. Uh, you know, or if you are, you're not going to remember who you were. So we get one chance. It's not a dress rehearsal. So my attitude is, if at all possible, I want to wake up happy. I want to go to bed happy. And I want to try and make the world around me for those I care about better in some small way every day. I do not achieve that every day. I don't. But having that as a thought process, that as a constant kind of simplistic way to look at things, is a pretty good fallback position. That's why I love having these conversations, because I learn from people like you who have developed systems, ways of doing things, and that's how we make each other better. And I feel that's ultimately why we are here, is to elevate each other. Um, so thanks for that, Gary. So let's talk about your business, and I, if we can, tie in the curriculum 
of what you're doing to, to taking that experience that you've had, 35 years at, at, in the industry, and now applying it to, uh, uh, I know you, you're teaching up and coming financial advisors, so those that are three years or less, as well as senior advisors, and there's a little bit of a, a difference in what you what you teach them. But so, if we could back up just a little bit for people listening who have never had a financial advisor, or if you could just give a quick explanation, what is your job as a financial advisor, and why do I, as a new investor or sophisticated investor, need you? Okay, so. It, it does not involve the, the mechanical aspects of investing, which everybody kind of thinks about. Um, what stock should I buy? What should I sell? Um, what it involves much more so are the emotional aspects of investing, because that's the bigger risk that most people face. Risk is not something that's well understood or well defined by people, because risk is just it's a thing. It's something you can define. It's the possibility of loss, damage, or injury. That's what risk is. Sitting here right now, we're at risk. I mean, anything could happen. We don't know what that might be. And there are things that we know are risks, and there are things that we don't know are risks. And those things, unfortunately, avail themselves at the most inconvenient of times, and we don't realize the exposure we have until we look at it in retrospect. So what I thought about um, as I got further and further into this was that the investing consistently and safely, safe being we get where we need to go over some measured period of time that we both agree to, is a solvable problem. It's math, it's probability, it's arithmetic means, it's just a discipline that you have to overlay on what you do. It's a mechanical thing to do that is, frankly, far less complex than most people would have you believe. The problem is in the discipline to execute. The problem is in the emotions that you will feel as you see things happen that the public generally believes. So as a financial advisor, my role was much more as a manager of other people's emotional responses to a certain set of external stimuli, which may be something like we're currently experiencing, but also that's overlaid and blended into this just, you know, terrible sauce of what's happening with them personally or family members or their professor or other things they care about, which leaves them overwrought in a lot of ways. And they look at their accounts and they say, well, everybody says the world's ending, so I have to do this, that, and the other thing. And then they go make a mistake and go out. Or they say, the market looks favorable here, we're going to go in. Instead of saying, okay, I'm here, I want to get to here, I've got a certain amount of time, I've got a certain amount of assets, what's the best way to do that? That's the solvable part. What the training has been about is removing the emotion from the mechanics of investing and have something that you can consistently apply yourself to which is self-correcting and kind of timeless. It's self-adjusting in that it balances away from overperformance, not towards overperformance. It's self-limiting in that you inform your clients up front that you've told me everything you have currently. We've absolutely figured out how you want this thing to end up, whether the end of your life is retirement, your estate plan, or five generations down the line. We know we've got all these different things that are going to happen along the way. We've got a bunch of unknowns that are going to occur as well. And as it relates to your timeline, 
this rate of return, whether it's 4%, 5%, 6%, whatever it is, most people don't realize that you know, the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. If you really sit and think about it, if you're unsure of it, go in and do a compound interest calculation, take your interest rate, divide it into 72, and essentially with rule of 72, what it means is if you're earning 12%, let's say, 12 into 72 is 6. Every six years, your money is going to double. So your money doubles in six years, doubles again in 12 years. So now you have four times as much money. Now, go in and hit that thing with a 30% loss. And you're looking at that number and then say to yourself, if I get a 30% gain on top of that loss, do I get back? And the answer is no, you don't. So upside compound interest is a wonderful, marvelous thing where when it goes and retraces against the compound interest, it's like it got tossed down the stairs and you're whacked and beat up. And that's why most people, when they get hit a couple of times like that, want to come out. So thinking about how those things cause these emotional responses, you put a discipline in place ahead of time before you put the money and you talk about those eventualities and you talk about conversations you're going to have when this happens. Here's how you're going to feel. Here's what we're going to talk about. Sure enough, what you talk about, good or bad, will happen. And you go back to the beginning and you reset the table. You say, so this is something we discussed. This is where we are. I know you paid attention back then. I remember what you said, took some notes. We're at that spot now. We knew it was going to happen. So let's go back to the decision we made here, which we were cool, calm, and collected. And let's not conflate it with all the things that have happened in between. And let's push on through, because we're going to be fine. The concept of them hearing that again, which is familiar, and them knowing that I know they're going to be fine because I've been down that path so many times is I think the best thing I can do as an advisor. When the market's going great, people don't think they need help. Um, when the market's in the tank, people don't want to talk about things. Interestingly, when we look at investors who are non-advised, who buy and sell investments on their own, their performance versus investors who are advised over any measured 10-year period is less than half what they would have had had they had an advisor there. At this point in time, um, people are seeking out professional financial advice at a higher rate for the first time than they ever have. And that's understandable. The question becomes whether the professional community recognizes the opportunity they have or they're going to let the emotional uh, impact of what we're currently in get to them as well because we're not robots. I mean, we're, we're impacted by it. But it's a job that has, I think, um, very important ramifications for society in general. And if you do it right, and you can change the arc of a family by removing one of the things that stresses them out, I just have always felt it's an incredibly noble way to do things. I know in the course curriculum you talk about the importance of relationships, touch points, um, and as a financial advisor's book of business becomes larger. How do you maintain that? Uh, you know, because I'm, I'm listening to your course, I'm thinking, okay, if I'm in that position, if I'm an advisor and I'm doing really well, and I'm doing everything Gary's suggesting, and, and, and it's growing, how do you maintain that level of relationship and touch point? Um, is it just rolling up your sleeves every day? Is it is it showing up every day? It, what, what? How do you how do you maintain that as you grow? Well, you have to. You have to predefine what you want it to look like on the back end as an advisor. Same way we do for our clients. Now, when you're just starting out, 
and you're under pressure to build an initial business, it's really hard. And you're willing to do whatever you need to do to acquire clients with no knowledge about how things really work. And slowly but surely, you school hard knocks, you learn, and hopefully you survive your, your period of uh, ignorance, I would say. But there's a transition that most advisors go through where they're, the weight of their own success begins to impede their future growth. And it's not because they don't want to grow, and it's not because they don't care about the people that they have. It's because that they've taken the approach that every client they bring on at the moment they bring them on has certain needs and certain expectations. And you want to feel as you're bringing a client on board at any length of service that this client's going to have a wonderful experience with you. But when you're taking clients on in your earlier years, it just naturally uh, goes to uh, the result that in your later years when you're getting smarter and better, um, you're going to be taking clients on that are more, uh, have more requirements. They're more complex. The asset bases are higher. The family dynamics are different and might require more time. So you end up almost trying to run two businesses. One business, which might only have, let's say, out of a total of 500 relationships, there may only be 100 of those family relationships, but they're giving you 80% of your what's called assets under management as well as 80% of your revenue. Then you've got 400 relationships below that that you, you do care about. I'm not going to say you're just ignoring them. You do care about them. But there's this feeling that grows that you can't get them to someone that can take better care of them because there's this whole thing with you feel guilty about it. So you almost end up putting them in hostage mode because you're not giving them the type of service that you as the advisor would be proud of. And they don't know it. And a lot of them are very nice people. But what you're doing is you're saying to yourself, well, I'm treating a large segment of my book as, as kind of something that I have to deal with as opposed to this other segment of my business which I want to deal with because that's where I'm making the most impact, I'm making the most money, that's where the assets are. So it's this kind of 80-20 blend and that to me is a limiting factor in all sorts of ways. It limits your ability to positively impact the people that you now have the ability to impact. And it also negates your ability to have any impact whatsoever on people that at one point really considered you their advisor that you're not ignoring right now, but for the most part, they're not getting from you what they need because you just don't have the time to put into them. And it becomes very unfair. So my belief was, and this was shown to me by a manager, fortunately in my second year, that if I believed long-term that I wanted to try and help the right people and always deal with a business where everybody, I can make everybody feel like a number one client, I wouldn't be able to do that with a thousand relationships. So I kind of self-limited to about 175 relationships because looking at the amount of time I could devote, that worked. And when I got significantly above that, I would find other advisors in the office, maybe younger advisors, and I would partner, that, partner with them, set up partnership numbers. and. It would be great for them because they'd have the ability to learn and I could mentor one younger advisor with 25 relationships that from the client's perspective, they still knew I was involved. Yeah. So I called and told them. But they got much better service and then ultimately as they transitioned to that younger advisor, that younger advisor could have the entire account. So I knew they were being taken care of. I knew the advisor was developing nicely because I would vet them. 
And that really worked. Now, a lot of the firms now are doing a little bit differently in that they're moving these quote-unquote smaller clients into customer service units. And the initial way they did that, I was in complete disagreement with because the customer service reps were just that. They were registered, but they were 1-800 reps, and you didn't get the same person when you called all the time. And now I'm seeing more recently that they're allowing those reps, if they show the proper growth, to begin developing the clients they've been reassigned and emerge as full-fledged financial advisors down the line, which I think makes more sense. I still favor the local partnership approach, but it's not something I'm in control of, but it's what I would do if I were still in the business. I would affiliate with younger FAs and mentor those FAs directly to keep that continuity with the client. But holding on to that book of business that becomes too big to manage um, is the largest impediment that an advisor who is successful has to becoming legendary. Because if they just for a moment thought about these hundred clients are the only ones I have, that's it. They're going to be thinking about things differently, they're going to find more opportunities, and the next hundred they put on are going to look like those 100 or better. And that has happened with me multiple times. But it's a hard move for some FAs just to go and do it. Gary, how do you see your course 12 months from now? What, do, what are you hoping to, I guess, I don't want to say gain, but what are you hoping to do for the, for the, for the students that will be taking that course? No, it's what they're going to do for me. They're going to put a smile on my face. They're going to allow me to have a feeling that, as, even as I think about it, I smile about it, because I remember as I was doing all of these things in person, just what a feeling of joy it was to see people's eyes light up because you know they get it, and you know that their life is going to change. And to me, the rush has always been, you know, and not only this approach changed my life, but you only get that feeling once. So being able to work with other people and have them go out and take some of the same concepts and principles that I was able to, to learn and fortunately be able to teach and watch them do it, it's cool stuff. It really is. And one thing that I will say is that when I, for, for a lot of years, I would run into people in random places, restaurants, airports, whatever it is, who would thank me and say, you know, because of you, I'm doing X, Y, and Z, and I wouldn't have done it without you. I said, no, stop. No. I'm calling bullshit. Um, here's what happened. You came. You spent a couple of days in Princeton with us. We came out. We saw you in Chicago for a day, and then we did a one-hour phone call. So total time that you were exposed to this training was about 17 hours. Haven't seen you in five years. A lot of time between now and then. Um, I don't recall doing that work for you that got you where you are. You did that yeah. work. Good for you because a lot of people could have heard that and done nothing with it. So I appreciate what you're saying. If I played a role, that's great. But all I did was help you unlock who you are today. So um, I appreciate the recognition, but you did the work. So that the, was the most satisfying part of my professional career. Um, I love taking care of people, but knowing that I could help FAs discover you know, the true joy of this job um, which shouldn't feel like a job, 
and know the good that they could do for the people that they cared for, to me, kind of ticks that box of leaving the world a better place, but amplified in a certain way. So that's what I'm hoping for. Well, let's make it a, a promise that we meet 12 months from now so we could talk about the, the, the year ahead, at that point, the year behind, and what's happened. Uh, I think that'll be fun to, to watch this whole thing grow. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Uh, I know you're going to help a lot of people, but the trickle-down effect is, is going to be phenomenal. You know, So I'm, I'm, I'm just excited to be a part of it. Um, thanks so much for your time, Gary. One last question before I let you go, and I ask every guest this. Um, at the end of the day, still have a lot of life to live. What do you want your legacy to be? What kind of mark are you trying to leave here on this earth? You know, we're all forgotten shortly after we're gone. Um, and that's just the way it works. Um, I've thought about that and I, I like to think, in retrospect, that I've touched enough people in a positive way that I've improved their lives and that any interaction I have with them, it, it mattered. It was relevant. And somehow they were better for having interacted with me. So if I can leave this earth and know that I left behind even just one person whose life I made better in some small way, that's a win for me because there's very few people that I think think about that. If it's more than one, that's an okay thing too. Um, my interest is, again, waking up happy, going to sleep happy, and trying to leave it a little bit better each time. I don't succeed all the time. We're all fallible. We all make mistakes. But my goal, basically, is to just try and leave it better than I found it. Gary Sinderbrand, welcome to the American Real family. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks, Roger. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.